This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here with my good friend, John Beeler. We have an awesome program for you today. It is the new year, and we're going to have a look uh, back at a few of our favorite segments from uh, last year in this particular program. Later on, uh, we'll be listening to uh, Michael Geist we're talking about Bill C-10, back from uh, one of our shows in uh, May of 2021. Uh, it's an interesting segment. It's all about the, the government and uh, them wanting to control user-generated com- uh, content, something that we should all be concerned about. We'll also be chatting with Carmi Levy about authentication apps and two-factor authentication with all the issues we're having lately with people getting hacked, uh, two-factor authentication is a way to deal with that that would shut a lot of the problems down. We'll explain what it is and what you need to do to make it all happen. Up first, though, John, let's talk about some of the tech news this week. Um, this was an interesting uh, comments out of uh, Samsung, basically saying their Galaxy Flip 3, that's their... Uh, clamshell phone, you know, the folding screen phone, motivated more people to switch over to Samsung than its other flagship phones. Is that surprising to you? Not at all. Actually, we kind of predicted this when we first got our hands on the Flip 3. It's a very attractive device. It's um, one of the best in the folding device category. And um, it's super awesome form factor. Fits in your hand really nicely, fits in your pocket. Um and uh, so much so that even Stephen, one of our contributors, he bought one himself. He liked it so much after we had the review unit in. And we kind of thought for sure this would be the phone to beat, in, in the, at least in the folding space, because it sort of hits all the right uh, checkboxes for people. It has the combination of style, has some interesting ways of uh, putting a case on it and even utilizing it. And it's a super nice form factor. It really harkens back to the old school flip phones and um, kind of the best of all worlds. Yeah, I, I have to agree, John. And, and the price, it's just over $1,000, I think in the $1,100 range, from what I can remember. It's actually something innovative. We haven't seen that in a long time. It's just kind of these minor iterations every year from all the manufacturers. And I think if you look at a lot of the phones out there, especially on the Android side, John, they're all screen. They all look the same. And they all kind of do 90% of what the other one will do anyway. So the Galaxy Flip having the, you know, the, the flip phone form factor, you know, back to the Motorola Razor days, I think appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, and it also they, they found some really clever things that you could do with the cameras because you can basically fold it and use the front and the back cameras at the same time. You can use it very easily just put down on your desk and watch content uh, on one of the screens and you have this fold folding hinge that basically allows you to orientate the, the screen any way you'd like. And um, yeah, and I think it's really probably uh, been a huge hit with all the Instagram people and the influencers that love that style of photography and the ability to do it all yourself as well with the Samsung software. So I I know you're an iPhone guy, John. If you had to go over to uh, the Android side, is this one of the phones you'd look at getting? Uh, Definitely. Yeah. No, I I almost switched this summer uh, when it came out. Um, But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing is we're, we're heavily invested on both sides. So we're not the target audience for these types of things because we, play with all the devices but definitely it is a very compelling device and probably one of the best utilizations of the folding screen tech that we've seen 
We haven't really seen too many others out there that have got the folding phone down yet. You know, Samsung kind of hit first with their Fold, you know, the one that kind of turned into a tablet. I, I thought super cool, but it's big, right? I don't want something so huge in my pocket. Motorola came out with their own, uh, but that hasn't lit the world on fire, has it? No. No, surprisingly, because we really like that phone as well, but uh, the sales just haven't been there because I think people are still a little skeptical of the durability of these folding screens. But I think with the Flip 3, this is the third generation, probably more like the fourth or fifth generation of their folding tech overall, they really got it nailed down. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to 2022 to see if any of the other manufacturers out there uh, will actually kind of come out with more innovative form factors or, or maybe improve upon uh, this one. And who knows, John, you, you feel Apple might get into this game as well with the folding screen? Uh, I'm not so sure. No? The, the durability is the big thing. And um, it's a nice idea. Is my life complete by having one contiguous screen when you unfold it versus having two separate screens with a little you know, bezel between the two, like the Microsoft Duo? Um, I, I don't know. I think that's going to be a personal preference. Um, but we know that even with these folding devices, there's still a crease. You do have one eventually, uh, but you don't even notice it. It's kind of like the notch on the iPhone. Most people don't even notice it after a few hours of usage. Moving on to uh, more mobile tech news here on the App Show. Canada's $20 million COVID alert app Abandoned by the feds, says uh, the Newfoundland minister. Any surprise to you, John? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just something that we we talked about quite a bit, and we knew that there was a number of provinces that didn't even support it. Alberta, BC, none of it, and Yukon do don't support it. So that really limits the usefulness of it. And also, even the provinces that did support it, they just didn't have a huge uptake. They only had 7 million downloads uh, federally. And of those downloads, they only saw 869 people report in the app in November. So less than 1,000 people. We're getting much more reports of COVID uh, infections on a daily basis in each province than that, let alone federally for people using the actual app. What do you think went wrong here, John? Um, I, I think it's just it's a combination of things. And one of the, the big challenges is always getting people that aren't technical to use a piece of technology. And this requires a lot of people opting in and using this by default. And also, if you do get COVID, to choose to put in your code so that you can let people know that we're in close proximity of you, that you had the app or that you had COVID. When you have COVID, this isn't the first thing you're thinking about. So this is that's one of the ways that it falls down, and the and the the numbers clearly show that only 869 people in November actually used it for that purpose. If people aren't using it for that intended purpose, then it doesn't really matter how many people you're in proximity of with Bluetooth technology and, and the app talking to other phones. If no one's actually actively uh, putting in information about the fact that they actually have COVID, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, just adoption. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of provinces not supporting it uh, either, I think doomed it to failure from the uh, beginning. But uh, again, John, millions of our tax 
dollars <laughs> up in smoke. But I guess 20 million pales in comparison to the billions being spent right now <laughs> fighting this this pandemic, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's couch change. You're listening to The App Show. Mike uh, Agarbo here with John Beeler. We do have an awesome program. We're uh, playing some of our favorite segments from uh, 2021, uh, including uh, one from Michael uh, Geist. He's talking about Bill C-10, where uh, the Canadian government uh, was looking to control user-generated content, content you and I make. What's that all about? Well, it's an interesting listen, and I encourage you to stick around for that. And two-factor authentication. This is a way to protect your personal and private information. And you should have this turned on for all the apps and websites uh, that you're using. We'll be talking with Carmi Levy about what it is, how to use it, and why you should get on it now. Back after this. We're going to talk about two-factor authentication. Okay, I know it doesn't sound very exciting, and I know a lot of listeners are like, oh my God, what is this? Well, this is something that is very important, especially in our digital age. It's a way of verifying and authenticating us when we're logging into different things like our bank accounts, Amazon accounts, pretty well everything now. And basically, when you log in with your password, that's kind of the first gate. Uh, But many times now, it also wants a second way to verify that it's you essentially. So uh, the big way they do this typically is through your cell phone. They will send you a text message with uh, a code that you have to put in to uh, verify uh, that it is you going into whatever account that you're trying to get into. And so we want to talk about some alternatives today. Uh, And the reason why is simple, because when you get these text messages, they're not always reliable. For example, Back in that Rogers outage, we were trying to get our COVID-19 vaccinations, John, and we couldn't because when we were uh, logging into the uh, the site, it wanted to send us a text message to authenticate us, but we couldn't because Rogers was down all day. Yeah, so we got our authentication messages at like 10 o'clock that night when they came back up for us. Which was too late. Yes. <laughs> and also one of our contributors uh, and producer, uh, Christina Stoyanova, she's actually working remotely now down in Honduras, uh, Rotan, which is this tropical island uh, off of Honduras. We all kind of hate her a little bit, but, you know, we'll get past that. And she is a problem because she logs into all these different accounts and services and she doesn't have her regular cell phone number anymore. So it's a problem. A huge problem for her because she can't even get into some of her bank accounts because they're requiring this authentication. And sometimes these things are even geolocated as well. So yeah. that could be a big problem that you need to fix before you go to Roatan and get that nice suntan. Well, we're going to come up with some solutions here. We've got a great guest on the line. His name is Carmi Levy, tech expert out of uh, Toronto, Ontario. Thanks for joining us, Carmi. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Is this a, a big problem, Carmi? Uh, this two-factor authentication now is kind of the norm now to make sure that we're not getting hacked. Uh, but as we gave a couple examples, uh, sometimes you don't have access to your, your cell phone and your text messages. Yeah, it's like one of those things that it doesn't seem like it's a big problem until it is, until you're cut off. And then, of course, it's a very big problem. And the problem here is that the industry, as the as, as organizations, companies, uh, service providers, platforms, as they push toward two-factor two or dual-factor authentication, which they should. We all want a second lock on the door. We need this. Um, they've settled on text-based or SMS-based 
solutions as kind of the answer. And pretty much everyone's got, uh, you know, we'll send you a text, it'll have a number in it, just enter it, and that'll be your second, you know, second form of, of, uh, of authentication. So when it works, it's great. But, you know, as, you know, per Chris's example, we don't always have uh, reliable access to cell phone service. Sometimes we're out of country. Sometimes the system is down. Um, you know, we've seen SIM swapping and SIM jacking attacks where hackers deliberately target our phones and redirect our phone numbers somewhere else. Then, of course, they use that to get into all of our accounts. And so it, it works for a lot of people, but there are some very serious concerns about whether it is the right solution for all of us. And so, you know, and we've seen with the Rogers outage, with, um, you know, the rise in, in cyber crime, we've seen that, you know, it's got a very weak underbelly and we've got to look at alternatives or we could be victimized going forward. Or, you know, even if we aren't being targeted, we'll simply be significantly inconvenienced because we won't be able to get into the services that we count on. And I think that's a, a big problem that some people have with these, you know, the whatever service that they're connected to saying, hey, we want to turn on two-factor authentication for you. It's an extra step that is an inconvenience for some people. And like, mm. no, I just know my password. I'll just type it in. It's fine. <laughs> like, and it, we're all good. Yeah, well, you know, I always remind people, you know, security is not an absolute thing. It's a balance thing. We always have to decide what that appropriate level of balance is. In other words, how much inconvenience are we willing to put up with up front in order to remain secure? Just like your security at your house. How, how quickly do you want to get into your house when you get home? Do you just want to have one lock on the door? In which case, you can get in really quickly and it's fairly easy. Uh, but then you're vulnerable because if someone picks that, that you know, relatively cheap lock, you're you're in a world of hurt versus do you want to have 10 locks on your front door in which case your house is going to be ultra secure but it's going to take you 45 minutes to get in and out of your house every day so digital security is exactly the same thing we're always deciding you know how many layers do we want to put on and i think at least a second layer or a second lock is reasonable because as i remind people whenever they ask me and they say the same thing it's so inconvenient it's such a hassle i just want my my browser my phone my tablet to remember my password and so i can easily get into all of my services think about what happens if you are victimized in a breach think of what happens if your username and password falls into the wrong hands Think about the amount of time and energy and heartbreak it'll take to come back from that. And I've walked people through recovery. It's a lot bigger hassle than simply putting in a, you know, a four digit or a six digit pin over and above your password. So think about that balance. A little inconvenience up front is worth saving a heck of a lot of heartbreak later on. I think you just touched on a, well, a nerve for me because one of the scary things is uh, when you realize that maybe there's a hack in progress. I've gotten some notifications fairly recently that someone was attempting to change the password on my Instagram account, for example. Mm -hmm. It's not the end of the world. They're not breaking into my house, but it's it's an account that I, I care about. So, um, But knowing there's somebody on the other side of that door that's trying to pick that lock, getting that notification that, hey, you know, if this was you, click okay if it wasn't you then we have a problem you know and mm -hmm. so then it just gives you that peace of mind that knowing that the locks are working and that you're protected as opposed to finding out a week later that you've been hacked for a week and you had no idea because they were able to take advantage of your poor security basically well you know what the problem yeah, is uh, yeah. most most people don't change their username and password for all the different things that they're logging into. So if hackers get a hold of that username and, and password, it's highly likely that you probably don't change it 
from your different accounts and they can just use that same set of credentials and just like blanket everything. Well, and it's not like they have to go to all those sites and type it. They just have a bot that runs and does all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's super easy for them once they get a, a known good set of credentials. Exactly. And we've made it easy because we use the same usernames and passwords for multiple sites, all the popular ones, so they know to sort of hit them all. uh, And we don't change them frequently. And when there is a major breach announced, we aren't taking the time to go into our accounts and and, and kind of update things and tighten our security settings, change the passwords to new ones so that even if they they use our old credentials, they're going to run up against a brick wall because we've changed them on them. So this is one of those cases where we have to stop being ostriches. We have to stop sticking our heads in the sand we've got to start opening our eyes a little bit and being a little bit more aware of those risks out there and being prepared to invest a little bit of time it doesn't take a lot uh, but a little bit of time up front when stuff like this happens so that uh, you know when those strangers half a world away decide to start pinging on our accounts they're going to run up against a block and they won't be able to break in well so we've been talking about two uh, two-factor authentication this is like kind of your second password uh for the important sites out there and pretty well most of them are are using uh this now and you know just back to what most people use it's their cell phones it's the text messages and it is a problem for me because where i live in south surrey i think god has shut off the cell service in my neighborhood you know i just can't get reliable service and the text messages come infrequently so i'm constantly struggling uh, with it. So I think we all agree two-factor authentication is important. We should be using it. We have to be using it. And I think we've scared a lot of people, Carmi. So we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the alternatives to using text messaging on your cell phone. Uh, other ways that might be a little more reliable to, to do that second layer of security. You're listening to The App Show. Back after this. You are back with the program, Mike and John here. We're talking about two-factor authentication. You probably have heard of it. You are most likely using it, but don't know what it fully means. Essentially, it's the second layer of security on your accounts. You've got your username and your password when you're logging into your bank account. But many times now, it'll ask for a second way to verify that it's you. Typically, that's done through a text message. I love Carmi's uh, analogy of referring it to as like the deadbolt on your front door. Exactly. It's the second lock yeah. on your front door. We have Carmi Levy on the line. He's a tech expert uh, out of uh, Toronto, Ontario. I want to talk now, Carmi, about the alternatives. Uh, as we were saying before, getting a text message is not always the most reliable way for that second factor authentication. And you've got a, a few suggestions on uh, some other ways uh, that it could work. Yep. So there's a category. First of all, if your phone has a, a fingerprint reader or facial recognition, which most popular phones today do, um, you can use that as your second factor uh, of authentication. In fact, many services will support it because it is so widespread and so widely available. So, uh, you know, all you really need to do is go into your settings and make sure that you're using the biometric features of your phone to authenticate into as many services as possible. And so that's one option when you're using your phone. Uh, Another popular solution is what's known as the Authenticator app. So Google has one, Microsoft has one, there's another one one called Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. Or if you use a password management app like LastPass or Dashlane, they have Authenticator capability built into it. And basically it works very similar to the SMS 
solutions, except it doesn't rely on your cell phone. It doesn't rely on a cell phone connection. Doesn't rely on your SIM card. Uh, so that app can be it can it can be on your phone. It can be on your computer. It can be on your tablet, and and you can you can use it to access all of your services. It will then send you uh, similar. It'll send you a six or an eight or a four digit number that is updated every thirty seconds, and then you have about thirty seconds or a minute or so, depending on the settings, to enter that that one-time password or OTP, and then you're in. So is it a bit of a hassle? Yeah, because you've got to step out, you've got to open up the app, you got to see what number it gives you, you got to make sure that you get it in before the time. So if you're a slow typist, you got to move quickly. Uh, but again, it keeps you super safe because I can guarantee you that no hacker, no cyber criminal would be able to pick off that 30 second or 60 second password and do anything with it before it expires. And so it's really secure, a little less convenient, but it also addresses all of the issues that we have with those cell phone based uh, uh, one-time password solutions that are already in place out there. So it bypasses them. Um, and if that doesn't work for you, this will. Do these authenticator apps work with every service or does the service have to decide that they're gonna support Google Authenticator or something like that? Yeah, most services have to support it first. In other words, it has to be in the settings. And so it is going to take a little bit of doing. You've got to install the app, first of all, set yourself up on it. Then you have to go into the service and you have to connect it to that app, make sure that they speak to each other so that it knows that, okay, when I sign in, I'm going to be getting a number from the Google Authenticator. The good news is, is the two most popular ones, Google and Microsoft, are responsible for the lion's share of all of the web services and apps that you and I would probably use in the course of a given day. So, you know, most of the big ones are all covered, all the social media platforms, pretty much every bank, financial services institution recognizes these as well. So these have become standards. All you need to do is go into the settings and set them up. And if you're not sure, uh, you can also ask the institution that you're working with. You know, my bank is very familiar with them. They walk me through setting it up on my phone. Uh, if you work for a company, of course, your ID department, your help desk, your service desk, they know how to set it up as well. And in fact, many companies, because everyone's working remotely now, they in fact insist on having all this stuff set up before they'll support you out of your home office. So the world is already very, very uh, kind of aware of these tools and every, everything pretty much works seamlessly with them. So where do people find these, uh, like the Google and Microsoft ones? What are they called? Go, go into the app store. It's the Google Authenticator or the Microsoft Authenticator, and they're in the iOS and the Google app stores, um, and they're free. Uh, so there is no cost to them. Uh, for some of the the, the, the password-based solutions, so for example, LastPass, there is a free version and then there is a, a pay version, but, uh, but you can get authentication services in the free versions of everything. So none of this will cost you anything if you don't want it to, um, and you can very easily get these apps. And you're not limited to one. Like I've got both the Google and the Microsoft versions on all of my devices, and I, I use them interchangeably. Uh, what about desktop PCs and Macs? Uh, same thing. So in many cases, you can either access it through the web. Um, so again, all that information is on the download page of the particular service. Uh, or uh, if you're using Google Chrome or some other browser that supports extensions or add-ins, uh, there are extensions and add-ins that will allow you to one-click uh, access it through your browser as well. So the nice thing is, is for example, whether you're signing, if you want to sign into your bank, you don't have to worry, gee, am I on my phone? Am I on my iPad? Am I on my laptop? There is a solution for all of them, and it works seamlessly across all of them as well. 
We're talking all about two-factor authentication. I know it's not a sexy topic, but it's something that you really need to know about. You're probably already using it. We've talked uh, today here with Carmi Levy about some of the alternatives as well. Typically, most people are using their smartphone. Uh, Getting a text message is kind of that second lock uh, to make sure that uh, you are the person uh, who you say uh, you are when you're logging into your bank account or, you know, your Amazon account uh, for that matter. And again, most websites and and apps are using this now because uh, it's just so easy to hack like the one username and password. And then, you know, the hackers can use that for all your accounts and you're out of business (laughs) essentially. Uh, And again, some of the alternatives uh, we talked about today, Google Authenticator and Microsoft Authenticator, and they're available in the appropriate app stores. Uh, Carmi, I want to thank you for joining us today and, and walking us through this. Wonderful being here. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike and John here. We've got a great guest with us today. His name is Michael Geist. Uh, He is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. We have him on the program because we want to talk about uh, changes to Bill C-10 and uh, the government and, and the CRTC having the ability to now not only legislate uh, and regulate uh, the streaming services like the Netflixes of the world, but also social media content and podcasts, user-generated content that like you and I would make, John. Yeah, we make a lot of that type of content. I want the CRTC to mandate and regulate my, my content. My, Michael, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Is this an unusual move uh, on the Liberals' part to uh, open up this, uh, this bill to user-generated content, having the CRTC regulate it? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I, there are a lot of words I'd use for it. I'm not sure unusual to <laughs> be at the top of the list. I'm being, uh, I'm being generous. <laughs> yeah, I think you're being very generous with an attempt by the government to literally regulate the speech of millions of Canadians. Um, I think it's enormously problematic. And what started as an attempt to bring large streaming services like the Netflixes and Disneys of the world into the Canadian system and require them to uh, pay to help support Canadian content has suddenly morphed into uh, literally regulating the speech of millions of Canadians, whether that's in TikTok videos, Instagram posts, Facebook posts, or podcasts, all of which is treated now as a program or would be treated under this legislation as a program that can be regulated by the CRTC. Why do you think they've gone down this path? Um, is it because they don't fully understand it and they're just trying to, to open up the fishing net to catch everything? Like, I, it, I, I don't understand it myself. Yeah, no, it feels a bit inexplicable as to why they would do that, especially given that they introduced the legislation by emphasizing that they were going to exclude this form of content. They said, we're going to exclude user-generated content. And in fact, uh, the legislation itself excluded it. So there were two exceptions in the bill. One excluded treating individuals as broadcasters. So it effectively said, just because you post something doesn't make you a broadcaster, doesn't mean you have to show up to Gatineau, where the CRTC is located for a hearing. That remains in place. But what they changed was the second part of that exception, in effect, which was an exception to say that the content that individuals create and post, whether a podcast uh, or an online video or a quick snap or 
uh, TikTok, all of those things are programs. And earlier we said the government said those were going to be excluded from the ambit of the act. Now they have removed that exception. And the effect, as I say, is to bring all of that within the scope of the legislation. So it's all programs and it's all programs that can, in theory, be regulated by the CRTC. So is this going to happen? <laughs> well, uh, as we, you know, I think, hmm, I hope not. Um, <laughs> that's, I guess, my starting point. I think yeah. this is incredibly uh, problematic, dangerous legislation. You know, I think that, you know, we start, we don't start from the proposition in Canada, a place where we've got a charter of rights and freedoms, where we value freedom of expression, that the government's starting point is that it gets to regulate all of that speech. This is for, you know, an entire generation posting a TikTok or sending something uh, on Instagram is their form of speech in the way that um, for my generation, it might have been a blog post or an email. And for earlier generations, it might have been a fax or a letter. We never would have envisioned that the CRTC would regulate the content of a fax or an email or a letter. But yet this same kind of speech in the new digital environment is somehow treated as subject to regulation. <laughs> Michael, what does that actually mean for these people that are creating content like ourselves? Um, like when you say regulate that speech, is that a new set of rules? Because um, it gets so murky, especially with TikTok and other things where, you know, some of the biggest TikTokers, for example, are actually Canadians, but their audience is everywhere else in the world. Right. You know, and that and, and one of the, the challenges, one of the problems, I think, with uh, with where we find ourselves is that there is a, an enormous amount of uncertainty as to um, what the CRTC will ultimately decide. And I should note, actually, that applies for the entire bill, for an, all of Bill C-10. So many of the core issues in it, not just with respect to individual podcasters or TikTokers, but even with respect to the large companies, the Netflixes and Amazons and Disney's is still very much up in the air. They've left it to the CRTC to render many of these decisions, providing very little guidance in the way of what they'd like to see. They kind of just want to be able to say, hey, we did something, wash their hands of it and say, hey, mission accomplished. But what that will mean is years of hearings, likely litigation as well, challenging this uh, before we ultimately know what exactly does the CRTC decide uh, from a regulatory perspective. But what we do know is that they will be required to make some kind of decision about how they want to regulate something like this podcast. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. Um, I, I read some interesting articles and, and uh, something that you've even commented on. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his uh, name correctly. Uh, the Heritage Minister, Stephen uh, Gilbold. Gilbold. Yeah. Um, basically, this is one of your articles uh, uh, saying uh, that his own department officials don't support his claims on regulating user-generated content. Right, yeah. No, so, I mean, that, and that stems from the fact that the government has been, and the minister, Gibo has been scrambling to come up with uh, an explanation for this significant change in course. Uh, you know, they've, they've even gone so far as to suggest this was really all about trying to please the music industry lobby um, where there were concerns about people who put music on YouTube. And so that's why we wanted to make this change. But of course that sounds like copyright reform, not like not broadcast. And so it seems little reason for them to have taken that approach. And it's not anything that they even mentioned when they made the change to begin with. You know, what I was mentioning in that post was that the minister has tried to say, you know, look away, there's nothing to see. We're not regulating user generated 
content. But yet when this change was proposed at the at the committee, so when the committee uh, was uh, studying this issue and the liberals, liberal government put forward a proposal to make this change, they went directly to his department to talk about what the implications would be. And the department official, a senior official said, listen, and I can quote, if the exclusion is removed, if section 4.1 is struck down, the programming we upload to YouTube, that programming that we place on that service would be subject to regulation moving forward. And so what I've liked to say in response to people say this can't really be real is, you know what, you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of senior officials at the Department of Canadian Heritage's word for it. The odd thing, of course, is that the minister doesn't seem to be taking their word for it. <laughs> It's a confusing time when it comes to content, uh, definitely. But uh, I, I guess in a nutshell, you're saying this is going to drag on for years. Well, I think if it passes in this form, yes. Um, you know, the minister has tried to tell the creative community, uh, happy days are coming. We're going to get you money by the end of this year, by the end of 2021. Uh, I think it's more likely that this is going to take at least five years before the CRTC sorts these issues out, before the legal process and the legal challenges play themselves out as well. So, yes, if this passes, I think we are in for a long series of hearings and litigation, which is costly and doesn't really help anyone. But of course, the legislation hasn't passed yet. It is uh, still at committee. It still has to complete the final reading in the House of Commons and then has to be reviewed by the Senate. And so I would say there is still an opportunity for Canadians to tell their members of parliament that, you know, of course, we want to see appropriate regulation for the online environment, but regulating the speech of millions of Canadians simply isn't it. We're talking with Michael Geist uh, all about uh, Bill C-10 and uh, the government and uh, the CRTC looking to potentially regulate all user-generated content on the internet. And we will be following this story as it uh, evolves. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with The App Show. Mike Egerbo here with John Beeler. Don't forget to check out our podcasts of not only this program, but our sister show, Get Connected, which you can hear every Saturday here on the Chorus Radio Network, even in Toronto. And our podcasts are available on our website, getconnectedmedia.com, and also on podcast sites like Spotify and uh, Apple and Google. John, one more day before CES, we're going to get COVID tests today. I don't know if I'll pass mine. Because <laughs> I just <laughs> had COVID. I'm hoping I will too. So we'll see. Um, I'm more worried about coming back, to be honest, because I, I hear the, the rapid antigen tests, which the U.S. requires, might not be as accurate yeah maybe more forgiving than the pcr test right and we're, we'll be taking a pcr test down there yeah a few days before we fly home and hopefully that won't show that we actually have covid yeah so that's my thing john i, I have to make a call here like you know do i do the test and okay sure i i you know, get a negative test i can get down there but i have to take a pcr test to come back what if I don't pass that? Then I'm living you're going in Las Vegas. Enjoying the hot tub. <laughs> I want to thank all the folks that uh, help put the show together. Of course, John uh, Beeler, my co-host, and uh, the rest of the folks back at uh, the studio. Again, don't forget to check out our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Lots of great tech blogs up there and videos of all the latest and greatest tech coming out here in Canada. 
We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.